If you have your Bible, go ahead and open to Romans chapter 8 with me. Romans chapter 8. Um, Romans is the Mount Everest of the New Testament. It is the Mount Everest of the New Testament. It's just this massive mountain to climb. And at the peak and at the pinnacle of that mountain is Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. Um, we are in a series where this morning we'll be discussing the Christian life. The Christian life. What does it mean to be a Christian? What does it look like practically? And some of you may be shocked that I chose a chapter with very little imperatives in it. There's not much in this chapter that tells us what to do. Instead, there's a lot about this chapter that tells us about who we are. I, I went back and forth over the last few weeks as I was thinking about this topic and thinking about the Christian life and just, man, like, man, what one passage would be a place where we could just plant, uh, plant our feet in for a day and, and just sit with and, and rest with it. And I, I, I thought of many different things. I thought of going to places in the Sermon on the Mount. I thought of going to 1 Peter 3 where he says, be holy as your heavenly Father is holy. And then I remembered Romans 8, and I thought to myself, man, this chapter of the Bible is everything that we need as a people. It is everything that we need as a people. I kept coming back to it and kept reading it, and then I was like, man, Romans 8 as a whole is a monster. There's no way I can do that in one week. And then I thought, you know, I'm a little crazy, so let's do it. So we're going to do the entirety of Romans 8 this morning, uh, quickly and succinctly, but what I want to first point to is why this chapter? Why this chapter to talk about the Christian life? And, and I think it, it has a lot to do with the impact of Romans uh, on my life and on my Christianity and, and on my uh, heart for the Lord, and, and then specifically the impact of Romans 8 on, on my life and my Christianity and my heart for the Lord. You see, I, I grew up in a home that um, had... Uh, a bit of legalism in it. And maybe it wasn't actual legalism, and maybe my parents were preaching the gospel, but what I heard and what I took away often was that I have to perform in order to be approved by God. Like, I didn't really understand the gospel. I thought that Christianity was just about being a good person. That's all it was. It was just, well, the Christians are the people that do good things, and I'm supposed to do good things and not do bad things, and I've got to have a complex scale of what good things and bad things. And if I get the right, you know, mixture, then maybe I'll, I'll get into heaven someday and believe in that Jesus guy, right? Like, that was the, the picture that I had in my head towards Christianity. And so sometimes I was just nailing that. Like, I was doing great. I was doing so good. Like, I'm a pretty good performer. And so for a while, I could muster up enough strength to look like I had the Christian life down. Like, I had lived a lot of my life with outside-in righteousness. Like, whatever people see, that's what's real. As long as they can see me walking in the way that I want them to see me walking, then I can feel good about myself. And so sometimes, man, I was just nailing it, and I would feel uh, like I was performing enough to feel approved. And then this thing happened as, as a teenager that, that I don't know if any of you have experienced, where there was a conflict in what I wanted people to see about me and what they were actually able to see. 
And so what I started to, to notice is that I started to slip and I, I started to slide and I started to, to move backwards. And every single time that would happen, here's what I would think. I've lost my salvation. I must not be saved. And I would be riddled with guilt and I would be riddled with shame. And I would, I would think, man, now I've got to just get my act together again. I've got to muster up enough strengths. I've got I've to pull myself up by the bootstraps and I've got to work harder for this. And then at the age of about 18, a pastor friend of mine who was super formative in my life sat me down and he told me, Austin, you are going to run from God if you do not sit and read Romans 8 slowly and carefully. And so I began to read the book of Romans. I started in Romans chapter 1, and I, I related to Paul saying that everyone is a sinner because I thought everyone else was a sinner but me. I related to that thought, and then I, I you know, moved into chapter 3 and 4, and I heard about the good news of Jesus, and I was like, look, this isn't that big of a deal. I'm pretty awesome right? Like, I'm a pretty great guy. And then I got to chapter 5, and I started to, to feel the weight of Romans on me, that it doesn't even matter how good I think I am. I'm dead in my sins. And I got to the end of Romans 5, seeing the goodness of Jesus, and seeing the goodness of God, and seeing how he moved out towards me, that he initiated relationship with me, and from that place, I'm now invited into his righteousness. And I get to Romans 6, and I start to see Romans 6 and 7 in Paul's complex battle between what it looks like to be in Christ and how we battle the flesh well in that. And I related super well to Paul in Romans chapter 7 when he said things like this, I do the things that I don't want to do. And I don't do the things that I want to do because I read those chapters and I thought, this is my life. This is my life of, 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 of feeling like I've got it down, feeling like I perform and then sliding backwards and feeling as if I'm not enough and I will never be enough and how could I ever be enough and how could God ever love me and how could he ever look at this pitiful creature and actually invite me into his kingdom and not believing it because I didn't think I was a good enough person. And then... And then I came to Romans 8, 1. After relating to Paul in Romans 7 with, oh, wretched man that I am, who will save me? Who will deliver me from this body of death? But thanks be to God. And I came to Romans 8, 1, and I saw these words on the page, and it's like Jesus came alive to me. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You see, I had lived my entire life in one of two positions, feeling justified by my own righteousness or feeling condemned by my lack of righteousness. And then I came to these words of no condemnation, and it was freedom. It was like the weights of my sin and my righteousness, my attempted righteousness all fell off, and I felt like I could run for the kingdom. 
And I felt like I could live for him because it was no longer living to build up and muster up my own salvation. It was no, there is no condemnation in Christ. And I lived in those words and I breathed those words and I needed those words at that time. But then later on in my life, I needed Romans, 12, or Romans 8, verses 12 through 13, where it says we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. But if we, by the Spirit, put to death the things of the body, then you will live. And I saw this invitation towards life again and life afresh and life that was new. And I needed that. I needed that good news that not only is there no condemnation, but that there is an end of my sin found in life with the Spirit. I didn't just need the news of no condemnation for my sin and then continue to be a really terrible human being. I needed the news that there was an end for my sin and there was an invitation to life and to righteousness. I was not stuck. I was not meant to live this life continuing to fail and continuing to falter. I was invited in to newness of life. I was invited in to righteousness. And I needed that good news. I needed to know that my sin doesn't rule over my life anymore. Not because of my mustering up of hard work. Not because I had figured it out for myself. But because of my total and utter, utter collapse of life. And to life lived in the spirit. When I was 16 years old, uh, let me try to explain this with an analogy. Something happened. My parents had gone away uh, for their anniversary. They thought it would be good to go to Hawaii. And so they were going to go celebrate their anniversary in Hawaii. And they left the car with my brother. And uh, my brother had his driver's license because he's older than me. And I had my learner's permit. And so I had a great idea one day to um, take my parents' car out for a ride. Because I had my learner's permit, and they weren't around. You know, they wouldn't really care. And my brother, you know, he, he wouldn't know about it. It'd be fine. I'd just go drive, and then I'd come back and, and park, and we'd be all good. So I'd take my, my parents' van at the time, and, and I'd drive to the, the church parking lot, because that's the place to go for nefarious things. And so I, I end up getting into the church parking lot, and, and uh, I'm, I'm talking with some of my friends, and we decide to start like playing a prank on some of our other friends, and I was going to be the getaway driver, and I don't know how I got myself into this, but I did. And so I was going to be the getaway driver, and the first thing that I needed to do was reverse the car to make sure that we were in an accurate position to just take off after we had played this prank on our friends. And so as I'm reversing the car, the next thing I hear is um, which if you've been in a car accident means I hit something. Uh, and, and, and the side of the van had just completely brushed up against a basketball pole that was in the church parking lot. And it had just destroyed the side of the van. Now there's two ways I could have handled this situation from here on out. I need to drive home. I need to figure out how to fix this. With every chance in the world that I might get in a bigger wreck, because I have no idea what I'm doing yet. Or, I could call my older brother, and he could come, and he could get the car, and he who knows what he is doing could drive home and get us there safely. And so that's what I did. I, I called my older brother. I, I did not figure out how to get myself out of this mess. I called my older brother. 
And he came and got me out of the mess. He came and drove me home. He came and brought me back to my father's house. That is life in the spirit. It is, it is life lived in the reality that we have just messed up the car and we need to call our older brother to come fix it. And he does. And he does. It's collapsed. The, the, the invitation for us is not do better. The inverse, invitation to us is stop trying to fix it yourself. And so, here's my, my working definition for this morning that I think is helpful for us. It is that the Christian, by the grace of God, and the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit will continue to grow in Christ-like maturity. And Romans 8 is going to teach us how that happens. If you have your Bibles, let's go. We're going to do the whole thing, and I'm going to be quicker than I've been. Somebody laughed. I love that. Romans 8, starting in verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh but according to the spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. For it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh, for if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him, in order that we also may be glorified with him. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope 
that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to, be, to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised? Who is at the right hand of God? Who indeed is interceding for us? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to the slaughter, to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is the word of God. Father, this is your word, not mine. And that's a good thing. That's a really good thing pray that you would teach us this morning. Help me to be quick of speech and clear in speech. It's in your name I pray. Amen. I'm going to attempt to divide this passage into seven mini-sermons. So here we go. The first of this is the Christian life is the justified life. The Christian life is the justified life. Those first six words in this chapter are absolutely insane. There is therefore now no condemnation. No condemnation. Looking at the context, again, Romans 7, we bring in this thought, O wretched man that I am, which is really what true gospel preaching should remind us of in some ways is our wretchedness. We should realize I am not what God calls me to be. His holiness is far beyond my grasp. Even my righteousness is filthy rags. And here we would, we would find ourselves in that place. What will we do? 
but thanks be to God. Because he's provided a way for us where there is no condemnation in Christ. And this way is through the justification of sinners. Through the justification of sinners. We've talked about some of these concepts before, but justification is legal language. It is legal language. It is Jesus in the courtroom of life as the older brother pretending as if he crashed the car. We'll come back to that analogy later. What then, if the Christian life is the justified life, does the justified life look like? Well, the justified life looks like identity. Identity. Again, imagine, if you will, with me, that you're in the courtroom of your life, and sitting as judge of your life are various individuals. They're various individuals. Maybe in, in your life, the judge over your life is your spouse, and if they could just be happy with you, if they could just see all that you're doing to make the house work, if they could just be pleased with you, if they could just always be satisfied with the way you live your life, if they could sit as judge over your life and tap the gavel saying, worthy of love, approved, everything I ever wanted in life, and I'm never disappointed in you, then maybe you could be happy. If your spouse could sit as judge and could, could tap the gavel over your life saying successful, then, and then maybe you'd feel like you're enough. Or, or maybe it's not your spouse who, who sits over the throne of your life and, and as a judge over your life, but it's culture's definition of enlightenment. It's your social circles. And so you have run around in this ridiculously nuanced world trying to have black and white opinions on every single thing that happens and pops up on your feed. And so you're supposed to be an immediate voice. You can't wait 24 hours because if you wait 24 hours, then did you really care? Were you really serious about this issue? And so you let culture sit as judge over your life and you feel like you're constantly running behind, that you're supposed to have this immediate voice, but you can never make anyone truly happy. And so you lean into a specific opinion or, or side before you've ever really actually thought out through the things that you're saying. And, and maybe just then, if people can see that, you, that you have, you have, you've been enlightened, you have figured it out, you've figured out this world, then you could stand approved. Then you can feel like, oh gosh, man, they think I am aware of things. They think I'm socially aware. And so you end up in this vicious, vicious cycle of wondering if you've missed something or if you've developed the wrong opinion. And so you get sucked into your echo chamber of angry social media voices just hoping that one day they'll tap the gavel on your life saying, socially aware culturally enlightened, approved, always standing up for the right things, always on the right side of the argument. Maybe, maybe that's not it. Maybe you don't deal with either of those areas, but you struggle in the realm of your parenting. And so you spend your life fighting to give your kids the best of everything. You spend your life fighting them to give your kids the best of everything, fighting to make sure they understand life in the way you think it needs to be understood. Maybe it's that life that should be easy and you want your kids to be able to look back on your parenting. They can tap the gavel and say, I never wanted for anything. They made sure I was taken care of. They were the provider. They were the caretaker. They were worthy of love and affection. Best dad in the world. Best mom in the world. Or, or maybe you're stressing yourself out trying to make sure that your child understands life's difficulties. And so you extol the values of hard work all the time, hoping, hoping, hoping that your kids will one day be valuable contributors to society. 
and you want your kids to be able to look back on your parenting and they can tap the gavel over your parenting and say, I always knew how to work hard and how to make things happen for myself. I never expected anything. I worked for everything. I have all because mom and dad made sure that I was a hard worker. They made sure that I knew that work came first and that's the determination of my value is that I worked hard. And so we, as parents, place our identity on what our kids think and say of us, what our kids believe of us. We, we have to have our kids do the things that we think is important. And if they're, if they're not living in those things, if they're not walking in those things, if they're not involving us in those things, if they don't want us to be around, then we wonder if ourselves, if our identity is lost, what are we if, we, if we're not a good parent? What, of, what are we if we've not succeeded? We stand feeling condemned, waiting for terrible gods to place a value statement over our life that says you're worthy. But here's what God does for you in Christ Jesus. Here's what God does for you in Christ Jesus. At the cross, Jesus was condemned for us in our place. Notice what what this does. It says that in Jesus, he condemned sin in the flesh. At the cross, Jesus owned our wrong as if it was his wrong. At the cross, God pronounces his final statement on our sin in Christ's death. In other words, he places the foundational value statement over our lives in Christ that you are no longer condemned. You are justified. Not because of your work. And so this pressure that, that we place on others to, to justify us, we have now, instead of others sitting as judge over life, we have God who sits as the true judge over your life. And he looks at you now and he says this, he says, justified, righteous, loved, cared for, cherished, son, daughter, heirs with Christ. Freed to live without the need to put our closest relationships around us under the crushing weight of our own identity because we've been justified. The Christian life is not just the justified life, but the Christian life is the resurrected life. The Christian life is the resurrected life. In verses 5 through 11, Paul begins to unpack for us what life in the Spirit looks like, and so much of that is closely tied to this idea that there is death in us and life in us, that we are dying to self, raising to life in Christ, to life in the Spirit. And here's what I want us to notice about this. Verse 11, if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Notice with me, if you will, that in this section of scripture, we have another verse that is fascinating. Verse eight, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. But if by the Spirit we've been raised to life, we have been raised to life as people who now have the value statement over our lives that it's no longer just that we're justified, but it is that our lives are pleasing to God. 
Our lives are pleasing to God. The, the Christian life is the resurrected life. So what does the resurrected life look like? The resurrected life looks like a life that is pleasing to God. It is a life that is pleasing to God. Uh, we go from impossible to please God, a life that goes from hostile to God to a life that now pleases God. Like in, in the cross, in the cross of Christ as Jesus dies, as he raises again to newness of life, we have two things happening there. We have Good Friday. It's the recognition that your sins really matter. They really mean something. They're not something to be taken lightly. They're not something to be ignored. They matter. But in the resurrection, we have something even more profound happening, that your sins are not the final word over your life. A life that is hostile to God is not the final statement over your life. A life that is pleasing to God is now invited through the redemption of our mortal bodies, through the life that the Spirit now gives us as we become saved and the Spirit dwells within us. There has not just been a change in us, there has been a change of us. We died on the cross with Christ. Life is given by the Spirit. You, know, you are no longer dead bones, but life has been breathed into you by God's Spirit. You are now walking as a new person. You are a new self. You actually have the ability now, not by your own works, not by your own efforts, but by life in Christ, life lived by the leading of God's Spirit that dwells in you, you can now live a life that is pleasing to God. You are not stuck in your sins. You aren't. So many of us believe that. So many of us believe that. And because we believe that, we never get out. And the invitation is to collapse. Call the older brother. Call your older brother. You don't now have to look over your shoulder every five minutes wondering if God's happy with you or if he's displeased with you. The word of God is emphatic here. When you are in Christ, you've been given the position and also the power to live a life that is pleasing to God. We're going quick. The adopted life. The, the Christian life is the adopted life. We've, we've dealt with this uh, recently on our sermon about the Holy Spirit, so I'm going to be a little bit briefer here. But the Christian life is the adopted life. It is uh, recognizing that we owe nothing to the old life. We do not owe anything to our old life. Look at verse 12 with me. So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. Notice here that he does say we are in debt, right? He says we're in debt, but he does not say we're in debt to our sin. The rest of the passage is going to build out that now as heirs with Christ, we are indebted to God. Life in the Spirit is now an invitation for us to put to death the deeds of the body so that we may live for all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. We owe nothing to the old life. We owe nothing to the flesh. We owe nothing to our sin. We owe nothing to feelings of unjustified, unsatisfied living. We are now debtors to righteousness, indebted 
to God's righteousness and the foundational value statement over our life that you have been justified. You live a life that is pleasing to God and you have been adopted. You are an heir with Christ. So what does the adopted life look like? No longer slaves, but sons of God. Yes, ladies, you're a son of God. That's good news uh, that you are so united to Christ that you get his position. You get inheritance with him. The, the translation here is not off. It's not that this should have been one of those moments where it was like adoption as sons and daughters or adoption as children. No, this is sons. It's, it's clear that the invitation for us is to the position of Christ to be able to reach out to God, not just as, as God creator, but God is father. God is father. We are no longer slaves, but sons. So let me make this plain. You crashed your dad's car. Jesus, the older brother, came and drove you home. He reminded you that you're a son, and he invited you to continue living in dad's house. Dad gets home, and he sees the car, and the older brother goes out and says, Look, dad, I know that it wasn't me who did this, but can I pay for it to be fixed? Can I, can I take the payment? I'll work the extra hours. I'll make sure it's fixed. Uh, I'll make sure that this is taken care of. Would you allow me to do that? The adopted life is the life of one who's part of the family and who's cared for by the family, who's cared for by the older brother, who takes the punishment for our foolishness, who cleans us up on the way home, who makes sure that we know that we're still God's children and desires to lead us into righteousness. The Christian life in the present is shaped by the future life. In verses 17 through 23, I'm going to read in that second half of verse 17 and move down. Um, if, no, I'll just read the whole verse 17. If children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him, in order that we may also be glorified with him. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only creation, but we ourselves. The Christian life in the present is shaped by the future life. Notice that this passage says suffering, that, that we suffer with him in order that we may be glorified with him. I consider the sufferings of this present time not worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed. Brothers and sisters, hear me, and, and this doesn't hit as hard in our Western society, but it still hits and it's something we need to recognize. Life is hard. You're welcome. If you had not heard that before, life is hard. Life is difficult. The Christian walk is easy, but it is not easy. But we can be confident that even though suffering comes, 
this is not the end. You and I live in an anxiety-driven age. We live in an anxiety-driven age. You do not have to go far to find somebody who struggles with anxiety. Your pastor is one of them at times. Why? Because we've been told our whole lives that we can do whatever we want, that the world is basically good, that everything is great, and then what happens? Reality sets in. Reality sets in and we realize that that's a lie. And we live in a culture where the prevailing voices in the Christian church are that of the prosperity gospel. And brothers and sisters, that is demonic voices that are speaking into the church. The prosperity gospel will murder your hope for the future glory. It'll get you caught up in your day-to-day life and it will riddle you with anxiety because it will treat you to believe. It will tell you to believe that your life should be better than this. You should have more control over your circumstances. Your children shouldn't be going through this. You must not be faithful enough. You must not trust God. That's demonic. That's a lie. It is a voice that has ravaged the church. It is so damaging. This idea that because you believe in God, you'll get whatever you want. It's using God, not for relationship with God, but for selfishness. It's saying, ah, I'll go to God so that my life will be preserved and I'll feel better about myself. And then we live in an age where life is hard and that voice is so damning. That voice comes into the back of the head and it says, what have I done wrong? Did this miscarriage happen because I don't have enough faith? Does my son have sleep apnea because I have not believed in God enough? Do I have to worry about his breathing every night because I don't trust God or because I have sin or because I have something? Is my situation hard because of something I've done? Don't get me wrong, sometimes it is. We mess up life enough on our own. But the life for the Christian is to recognize that the sufferings for us are not signs that we're not in God's will. They're reminders for us that this is building for us a future glory that is far beyond comprehension. Our hope is not in this life. We know that this life will be filled with troubles, but we know that the future will be glorious. We can be confident that the trials and tribulations of this life are producing for us a weight of glory far beyond our comprehension. We do not live in the present as if the present is all that matters. We live with eyes on the future, knowing that Christ is, he is redeeming for us heavenly bodies that, we're, that are filled with a weight of glory far beyond what we can comprehend. This is not the end, my friends. So what does the future life look like? It's glorious. <laughs> it's glorious. There's a scene in the Chronicles of Narnia, the last battle where um, 
it pictures heaven and, and Aslan, who's the Christ figure, has this line as they're, as they're continuing on. It's further up and further in as they race through the new heavens and the new earth and they see God's glorious beauty. They see all of, all of their pain has been washed away. They see the markers of their pain that remind them of the goodness of God. They see just as Jesus saw in his hands nail-pierced hands because they're reminded of their sufferings producing for them a weight of glory in this time that is far beyond comparison to the sufferings they went through. They're reminded that there is redemption for our bodies and that we will be restored to the likeness of Christ. The Christian life is a life of sanctification. In verses 23 through 30, we, we see that truth. Uh, I'm going to share a quote from Dietrich Bonhoeffer from his book, Cost of Discipleship. He says this. He says, cheap grace is the deadly enemy of our church. We are fighting today for costly grace. Cheap grace means grace as a doctrine, a, a principle, a system, the justification of sin without the justification of the sinner, the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance, baptism without church discipline, communion without confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship, grace without the cross, grace without Jesus Christ living and incarnate. In other words, cheap grace Grace is justification, the comfort of the gospel, without sanctification, the call of the gospel. So what is the call of the gospel? What is God's will for your life, brothers and sisters? God's will for your life is that you would be conformed into the image of his son. Verse 29, he, he says this, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined, don't worry about those words, they just mean foreknew and predestined, to be conformed to the image of his son. That's what God's destiny for your life is, that you would be conformed to the image of his son. We are not alone. Verse 23 tells us that we, we're, we're not alone in this process. Verse 23 tells us that we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons. The redemption of our bodies. Verse 26 tells us that the Spirit intercedes for us. There is never a point in your life and in my life where we are without God. There's never a moment where we're without God. Like we do not need to pray to saints. We've, we've got God literally praying for us right now. Is that not unbelievable? That the God of the universe, God the Father, is sitting as, as God the Son is sitting at his right hand and, and God the Son is interceding on our behalf. But this text tells us it's not just God the Father and God the Son that are interceding on our behalf. We also see that God the Spirit is interceding on our behalf. You have two intercessors in Romans, the Spirit and Jesus. How does the Spirit intercede? Verse 27, according to the will of God. He prays for the things that we don't even know we're supposed to be praying for, and he prays for the will of God to be in our lives. And what is the will of God for your life? That you would be conformed to the image of Christ. So what does the sanctified life look like? It looks like becoming like Christ. It is growing in Christ-like maturity. Why? Because we know with confidence that God is with us and that he is praying and working for us to bring us about into the conformed image of Christ. 
Redemption is not that we are all terrible people and life is awful and we hate everything, but good news, we get to keep being terrible heaven and are terrible people and when we die, we get to go to heaven. No, the redemption is the promise that God is working in and through us to redeem creation and restore the image of God in us perfectly to bring all things back to that position of very good, very good. Verse 28, all things, all things work together towards that end in our lives. We cannot divorce 28 from 29, that God working all things together for the good of those who love him, who are called according to his purpose. What's the purpose for your life? To be conformed into the image of Christ. God's work in your life. When he says that all things are for the good, that means that everything that comes your way, God is capable of using to conform you into the image of Christ. All things in our lives are brought about by the will of God according to his purposes. We can trust that they work for our good. When we love God, we know that all things are working towards the end of our good, towards the end of our sanctification. God is not just good to us. He is good for us. I'll be brief here in closing. The secure life, now the Christian life is the secure life. In verses 1, 31 through 39, Paul goes off in a rant of rhetorical questions and worship. It's the crescendo of the chapter. Paul turns to doxology. If all of these previous things are true about you, then we can worship. Why? Because God is for us. He's not out to get you. He's not hostile to you. He is for you. How do we know that? How do we know that? Well, verse 32, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised? Who is at the right hand of God? Who indeed is interceding for us? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword as it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No. In all of these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Many of us, I think, are asking, is there some future day where God will stop covering us with his grace? No, there's not. Maybe we think, oh, if God knew this about me, he wouldn't save me. Verse 33, who shall bring any charge? It's God's who justi God who justifies. I'm, I'm sure God forgave me back then, but I don't think he can keep putting up with me. Verse 34, who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised? Who is at the right hand of God? Who indeed is interceding for us? But life is dangerous. Sufferings are abundant. We might face a day of persecution for our faith. It's uncomfortable in the social sphere to be a Christian. How can I know that God loves me? 
For your sake, we're being killed all the day long, but we're more than conquerors through him who loved us. So what does the secure life look like? Considering verses 35 through 39, even those things are used for the good. Romans 8 is clear that when we hand our mess over to Christ, our Savior, we can have confidence in God's love through Christ. Condemnation is not delayed. It's no condemnation now and forever. The gospel is clear that God really does love us today because God really will love us tomorrow and the day after that and the day after that up until eternity. Look, we don't know a lot about what our future holds. I cannot tell you what's going to happen tomorrow. But here's what we do know. That we will always be moving from one moment to another of the love of God as we become conformed to Christ's image by the power of the Spirit forever. So, we've crashed the car. Let's call the older brother. Let's go all in on staking our future on Christ. The way to growth and maturity is not pulling up our bootstraps. It's collapse into the arms of Christ, being moved along by God's love, made known to us by the Spirit. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for this mountain of a chapter. Lord, we know that there is so much left here that we could spend a whole lifetime with. Uh, read the other day that there's there, there are thousands of commentaries on this chapter alone. And so we know that we could spend the time, Lord, but we have desired to see what your heart is for us, what our life in the Spirit, what our life in Christ looks like from this passage of Scripture. And so I pray that we would live into these identities, the identity of justified, the identity of resurrected, the identity of, <laughs> of adopted, the identity of, of sanctified, the identity of we have a future glory, a future hope, the identity of security, Lord. Let us lean into those things, and I pray that you would lead us and guide us in all things to know that our walk with you is the, the walk of collapse into your arms as you carry us. Help us to do that. It's in your name we pray. Amen.